Genesis 26, we're going to be in verses 1 through 5 today, and we're actually concluding our series called Call and Response, The Faith of Abraham. And I chose this passage specifically for a reason. It is actually, it takes place after the life of Abraham. And I chose it specifically because we've been talking about Abraham as the man of faith. And that's how he is often uh, referred to in the New Testament and, and, and everywhere. We talk about Abraham and his faith. But I chose this passage specifically because in it, we experience God's summary of Abraham's life. And God summarizes Abraham's life as being a life of obedience. And so it's, we're concluding our series on the faith of Abraham with a sermon entitled, The Obedience of Abraham. So if you would, Genesis 26, verses one through five. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you for to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments my statutes, and my laws. Let's pray again together. Lord, we pray you would teach us today from your word. Lord, your scriptures say that all scripture is breathed out by God and and profitable, Lord. And so we pray that we would hear your voice today. God, we pray that you would teach us, that you would empower our understanding, and Lord, that you would empower us to obey your word to live the lives that you are calling us to live, to put Christ on display, to show the world, God, what you are like. And so Lord, move among us and speak to our hearts today. Be glorified in this place, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, God summarizes Abraham's life as a man of obedience. He says that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. God says very explicitly in this moment, as he is passing the torch to Isaac, Abraham's son, as he's blessing Isaac, as he's inviting Isaac into this covenant relationship and into the covenant blessing that he promised Abraham, he says the reason that he is doing it is because Abraham obeyed. Now, I would put the word obedience right up there on the, like toward the top of the list of words that make us uncomfortable. Okay, like words like, like discipline and authority, and moist. (laughs) Listen, I don't have a problem with the word moist. I know people do, because I looked up its synonyms, and they're not any better, right? Like, this cake is delicious. It's so damp. I won't get into some of the other ones. They're gross. They're nasty. What are our objections to the word obedience? Why does it make like, oh, we got to obey? Ah, ah, ah. 
We have these objections to the word obedience. I don't think anybody would agree that it's wrong to do the right thing. Now, we, we don't agree often on what the right thing is, but to obey is not a bad thing, and yet it gives us bad feelings sometimes, especially in the form of a command, obey me. I think some of the reasons that we object to the word obedience, one is because the command to obey feels oppressive. Right? If you grew up in a tyrannical household with arbitrary rules that were imposed upon you for no particular reason, and you didn't understand and you were disciplined when you didn't obey, then the idea of coming to God and God saying, obey me is like, ease up, God. You know, I thought you were God of love. Sometimes the command to obey feels oppressive. Also, uh, obedience fails to give us what we want. One of the reasons we object to the command to obey is because some of us have tried it and it didn't give us what it promised. If, if you are uh, a part of, of my generation and were raised in the church, you may have been raised within something that is known today as purity culture. Okay, purity culture was this attempt to train up young men and women to live pure lives uh, free of, of sexual sin and sexual temptation. And so often the promise was, you know, if you want a, if you want a good marriage, you know, you have to save yourself for, for marriage and God will give you a spouse. And then many people, they grew up and they got married and they realized that virginity, although is important and precious and, and should be protected outside of marriage, it's not the secret to a happy marriage. And so people got married or they're still waiting to get married. And they're like, God, I did everything you told me to do. And it didn't give me what I want. And so when that happens, they say, this is broken. It doesn't work. And they throw it out. And they often throw out obedience together as the baby being thrown out with the bathwater. And so some of us have tried it. It doesn't work. And we're frustrated by it. And this leads us to the, the, the next objection. Obedience often ignites our fear of legalism. See, we don't like the word obedience, but I think in many churches, we misunderstand the word legalism. See, legalism and obedience are not the same thing. Legalism is obedience for the attempt of earning a right standing with God. So reading your Bible is not legalism. Praying is not legalism. Coming to church is not legalism. It's legalistic if you're doing those things and believe that because of them, God thinks better of you. See, it's earning salvation. Okay, our obedience as Christians is in a response to the salvation we have been given. And yet we often associate the command to obey God with the legalistic commands that we have heard in, whether it's our life of faith or uh, from Christians in our lives, that if we just went to church or just read our Bibles or just prayed more or just stopped doing this or just stopped doing that, that God would think better of us. And it's not true. Apart from Jesus, there is nothing you can do that will make God uh, uh, accept you. God won't, uh, is, is, is not going to let you in because you, you did all of these things. He's not going to enter into communion with you because of your resume. 
It's not how it works. And in Christ, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. Nothing you can do to make God love you less. He loves you with a perfect, infinite, unbroken, permanent love. It can't get any better than that. It won't get any worse than that. And so we read our Bibles, we pray, we come to church, we're in community, we confess our sins, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we offer sacrifice of praise, we do all of these things, not to make God happy with us, but because he has made us happy with him. Because because he has given us joy and restored our souls. And so we can't just object to the commands to obey and say that it's legalism because we're not trying to obey to earn anything. See, obedience is only problematic when it does not come from faith, but faith will always result in a pursuit of obedience because there is a symbiotic relationship between faith and obedience. In in the natural world, there are organisms that live in this united partnership with one another, that they, they're almost inseparable. You, you can't identify one from the other. A, a, a brilliant example of this is, is uh, lichen. Um, you've seen kind of like the mossy substance. It's actually a combination of two organisms. It's a fungus and then a photosynthetic organism like algae or cyanobacteria or whatever it is that actually uh, inhabits the fungus's cells. And the fungus provides a structure and safety for the, the uh, photosynthetic organism. And the organism provides nutrients by doing photosynthesis uh, and giving nutrients to the fungus. They are inseparable. You cannot tell the difference one from the other, but if you were to pull them apart, neither would survive. And so it's the same with faith and obedience. They are two sides of the same coin. They are in partnership together, never competing with each other and only serving to grow and advance one another. Think of it this way. What you believe impacts how you live. So another example, many of you this morning believed it would be cold in here. Okay. You know, from historical experience. And so you brought jackets and blankets and everything. We, we brought hand warmers uh, that are over there in the back, just in case you want a hand warmer. You believed it was going to be cold. And so you acted accordingly. The more significant the belief we have, the greater impact it will have on our life. Um, It was because of what Abraham believed about God that led him to his obedience to God. Remember Genesis 15, 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Okay, here's another word that we don't often understand. Righteousness we've talked about before, does not mean that we do everything right. Okay. That would be obedience. Righteousness is that we have a right relationship with God and others. Okay. So a child can live in a righteous relationship with their parents, even if they have been disobedient by seeking restoration, apologizing and receiving forgiveness. Otherwise, we live in unrighteousness. 
So the same goes for with God. Righteousness does not mean you are perfectly obedient. It means that you have a right standing before God. And so Abraham's right standing before God was because he believed. So that after his death, through the righteousness that he was granted by faith, it it resulted in such a desire for, for God, for his will, for his purposes, that after his death, God says that he had kept his charge, his commandments, his statutes, and his laws. Listen really quickly to what Moses commands the children of Israel prior to Moses's death in Deuteronomy 11.1. 1. You shall therefore love your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. Those two very almost word-for-word statements are not a coincidence. Okay, Moses is credited with authoring Genesis through Deuteronomy. And he uses both of these opportunities to talk about the requirement to obey God's voice, to keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. Now, the interesting thing about this is Moses lived after God gave the law. God gave his law on Mount Sinai to Moses. And Moses communicated it to the children of Israel. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, are often called the Torah, which is Hebrew for law. And in the Torah, it is uh, traditionally understood that there are 613 commandments, which is that same word that's used in both of these passages. And so what he is doing is he's calling all of Israel to obey God's law, to obey all of God's law, to walk in his ways. Okay, that makes sense. That's what we're familiar with. What we're unfamiliar with or what might not make sense is how Abraham could have said to keep all the law, even though he lived before the law was ever given. Abraham didn't have the law. He didn't have the Torah. He was living the Torah. He didn't have the 613 commandments. And yet God says that he obeyed it all. Now, this is why this is significant. If Abraham, who lived apart from the law, is said to have obeyed the whole law, then there is hope for each and every person who has ever found themselves living apart from the law. Because Abraham's righteousness is by faith, and so is ours. Abraham didn't know the law, but he knew God. And the law of God is just putting a picture of God, his wisdom and his goodness and his holiness on display and inviting his people to live in light of his wisdom and goodness and holiness. We're told in scripture, commanded in scripture to obey, to be holy as God is holy. And so Abraham didn't have the law, but he knew God. He knew his faithfulness. He knew his goodness. He knew his wisdom and his justice. Think about everything that we've been talking about in this series and all that Abraham has learned about God. And so he knew his character. 
And he lived in response to who he knew that God was. And so his life of obedience flowed out of his faith of knowing who God is. See, we don't ever really live outside of our own convictions. Instead, what we often find is a struggle between two uh, opposing convictions. Um, So you can uh, really want to see uh, a movie or or go, go to a particular restaurant with friends, and that's important to you but you can have another opportunity uh, that is also important to you and, and, and choose the other way because there are these rivaling convictions. There are rivaling beliefs. Either one's going to be fun, but you make a choice. It's, you're not disbelieving this. It's just that you had a belief, a stronger belief, a stronger desire to pursue the other thing. Most often, our lack of obedience does not reveal that there is no faith. Our lack of obedience doesn't instantly go, see, you don't believe. But most often it, it reveals that there's another belief close at hand. We see this in the Old Testament. Okay, the, the people of Israel, they had God's law. They believed in Yahweh, the God of Israel. They, they worshiped Yahweh. They, they, they made sacrifices in the temple. They, they, they would, would obey the Sabbath. They would do these, these various things. But at the same time, they would worship these other gods. And God continues to rebuke the people for worshiping these other gods. By worshiping gods like Baal and Molech and Asherah and all of these different things, they weren't saying, I don't believe in Yahweh. They were saying, Yeah, I'll go to him for the forgiveness of my sins. But right now I really need a good harvest. And so I'm going to go to this God. Or there's a drought. So I'm going to go say what's up to Baal, the storm God, uh, and, and, and see if he'll come like bring the rain. They're not saying they don't believe in Yahweh. They're just saying that there is a, there is a desire that is rivaling their desire for Yahweh. We see this today. Many people are happy to receive salvation from Jesus, but not his commands. Jesus himself says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Why do you call me King and Master, Lord, and yet not do the things that your Lord is telling you to do? Again, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So many people put this, this uh, they contrast the, the, the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament. And they'll say the God of the Old Testament just required obedience, but the God of the New Testament is, is this God of, of grace. And so many people, they struggle with this. And, and many pastors even say, we should actually unhitch our faith from the Old Testament because it's just confusing. And so we focus our time in the New Testament because that's where we learn about Jesus and that's where we learn about grace. And it's kind of a different way of life. I argue that it's not. See, the New Testament authors, the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. 
and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, correction, uh, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Like all of these, that it's breathed out by God. Every scripture, all scripture breathed out by God. Guess what he wasn't talking about? The New Testament. It wasn't written yet. He was writing it. He's referring to the Old Testament. That the Old Testament is breathed out by God and profitable. And the Apostle Paul interprets the Old Testament in light of grace. That Abraham is justified by faith, not by works of the law, that no man should boast. The New Testament authors did not have any problem looking at the Old Testament and seeing a God of unending, loving grace and compassion for people who in response to that grace were called to live in light of God's holiness. That's what we see from Genesis to Revelation, a God of grace who calls us to live by faith and that faith puts on display a life of obedience. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 in the, in the New Testament gives one of the best summaries I know for this close relationship between faith and obedience. It says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So look at, the, look at this, like, this tapestry that, that Paul is saying. It is by grace that you are saved. It is a free gift of God that you are invited into salvation. It is not a result of works, not a result of anything that you have done. It is a gift of grace not according to works. For we were created, new creation, new birth, born again in Christ Jesus for good works. That's the reason that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, the good works that God had prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that we should obey and do the things that God has called us to do. It's grace, it's faith, it's obedience, all wrapped up into a life that is submitted to the glory of God. And so the life that we're called to live, what we see in the life of Abraham is that the life that we are called to live is a life of faith-filled obedience to God. Faith-filled worship, faith-filled love, faith-filled service, faith-filled generosity, that faith and grace motivate the things that we do. Not salvation. Salvation doesn't motivate us. That's legalism. That if I do these things, then I will be saved. No, it's I have been saved by God's grace. So I'm going to do these things. Uh, A a pastor and a friend of mine puts it this way. God's commands are like railroad tracks. Okay, They, they point us in the right direction. But the railroad tracks are powerless to move the train. You need an engine to move the train down the tracks. And so grace and faith is the engine 
that empowers our lives to move in obedience to God's commands. The engine and the tracks work together. Without the tracks, you derail the train. Without God's commands, we shipwreck our lives. But because we know God's commands in his word, we know his goodness and his holiness and the life that he is calling us to live, then it is by grace that he actually propels us into that life. I don't have this in my notes, but another passage in Philippians chapter two, uh, Paul says, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but also even more so in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. As you've always obeyed, so now keep obeying. Let let your life work out the obedience. Let your salvation work out obedience for even the desire to do what God wants you to do comes from the power of God. The very will to do his will, the very desire itself is a gift from God. And so this is the way that we were meant to live, a life of faith-filled obedience to God. This is the way Adam and Eve were meant to live. They were supposed to trust God, believe that God knew what was best for them and obey the command not to eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If they had obeyed, it would have been from faith, trusting that God knows what is best for them. This is the the way we see Abraham living. He trusted God, that God knew what was best, that God would, would be faithful to his promises. He learned it over time, but ultimately we see his obedience in the text that we studied on Sunday, where he had faith that God could raise Isaac from the dead. And so he was willing to obey the command until the Lord prevented it to offer his son as a sacrifice. So the reason that all of this again is significant is because if Abraham who did not have the law is said to have kept the law, then each and every one of us who find ourselves living apart from the law can find grace, can find hope, can be declared righteous and experience the blessing that comes from obedience. There is great blessing in obedience might be different than we expect, but there is blessing in in obedience. All of this, Abraham's faith and his obedience results in blessing, but it's blessing that Abraham never experiences himself. See, when God is telling this to Isaac, Abraham has already gone to the grave. He doesn't see the 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 family, the multitudes, the great nation. He doesn't live to experience his family living as a blessing to every family on the earth. He doesn't doesn't get to inherit the, the, the promised land. He's living as a sojourner in the promised land. And so all of this, these these promises, these blessings that Isaac is now receiving is because of Abraham's faithful obedience. Now, many of us are here today and we, we struggle with one side or the other, either uh, wrestling to believe, and some of us wrestling 
to obey. And what we need to see is that in, in, in each situation, there is, there's a, there's a, there's a unity. Our faith fuels our obedience and our obedience fuels our faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in one of the most influential books I've ever read in my Christian life, The Cost of Discipleship. He, he goes on, on this at great length talking about the connection between faith and obedience. And he goes so far as to say, only those who believe are obedient and only those who are obedient truly believe. He sees such a connection here that, that, one cannot exist without the other. And maybe you have friends or people in your life that have experienced this. They, you, see, you see them kind of shifting, falling away from their faith in, in God. And, and right along with, not every time, but right along with it, there's often a, you know, maybe there's a lifestyle change. Maybe there's things that they've let into their lives that they're wrestling with and and, you know, because God doesn't immediately just come and smite us in the moment for our sins, it's like, well, maybe this is okay. Maybe it's okay that I keep living this way. I know what scripture says, but I mean, if I don't have to, you know, like uh, obey the Sabbath and like never leave my house on, on Sundays or, you know, things like that, if maybe I don't have to obey this thing about, you know, sexual purity, or I don't have to obey this thing about uh, taking care of my family, or maybe I don't have to obey this thing, whatever it is. And so there's this, there's this lifestyle change that doesn't receive immediate correction. And so we begin to question, well, then is this even real? Is, is this other thing even real? And so our faith and our obedience, again, there's that symbiotic relationship. And what we need to see is that even the apostle Paul himself wrestled with this. Romans 7, 19 through 25. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul lived an incredibly holy life, had faith, insane faith. And here we see him wrestling with his own obedience. Professor once told me that Paul is not wrestling with with sin because his sin is so bad. He says, Paul is wrestling with sin because he's so holy. He said, a black stain on a black shirt is hard to see. But even the smallest black stain on a white short, on a white shirt is clearly seen. And so as we pursue holiness, as we pursue obedience, our sin will begin to grieve us more and more. And the response is not to harden our hearts and say, I don't need to do that. Do you need to do it for salvation? No, you're not saved by works. You're saved by grace. But if we're ever reading scripture and we come across a passage that like just sticks its finger in the way that we're living and makes us uncomfortable, we just sit in that for a little bit instead of just turning from it because God might be calling you 
to holiness and to reflect who he is to people around you. And so Paul, he wrestles with this wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And here's where we find the key. Okay, our text today is not about Abraham's blessing. It's about Isaac's blessing. And God blesses Isaac because of the faith-filled obedience of another person. And your blessing, your life, and your future, your salvation, your relationship with God, your assurance of eternity is based on the faith-filled obedience of another. See, we are not saved by our obedience. We are saved by the obedience of Jesus Christ. By the faith of Jesus, who believed exactly who God said he was and had assurance, confidence that he is able to raise him from the dead. Jesus, in his his trust of his father in heaven at Gethsemane, he's on his knees. Luke says he's sweating drops of blood. There's this agony in him. And he says, Father, if there's any other way Let this cup pass from me. Jesus is saying, Father, I don't want to have to go to the cross. It's not going to feel good. I don't want to do it. I don't want to lose intimacy with you. I don't want to experience this pain. I don't want to have to do this. Yet not my will, but your will be done. That Jesus believed wholeheartedly that even if he had to suffer, even if he was going to go through the most extreme form of torture and execution imaginable, he trusted that his father was good and that his father knew what he was doing and that his father would save humanity because of his faith-filled obedience. You are saved, not by your own, but by Jesus' faith-filled obedience. Through faith, you're united to Jesus, into his life and his death, so that every righteous deed Jesus accomplished, you are united to that righteous deed, as though you were the one who did the righteousness. Every obedient thing Jesus did, you're united to that obedient thing so that when God looks at you, he sees the obedience, the righteousness of Jesus. You're united to Jesus in his death so that even the sin in your life has already received the death that it deserves. See, we often say that Jesus died so that we can live, but Jesus died so that our sin could have a death that doesn't require our death. Jesus died so that you wouldn't have to die for your sin. We're united to Jesus in all of that he accomplished and all that that we have done in rebellion. We're united to him in his death that his blood covers that sin. And forgiveness of sins is purchased on the cross. And so because of Jesus' faith-filled obedience, you are saved. And what we believe changes things. And the more significant of a belief we have, the more it impacts in our lives. 
And there is nothing in our lives that is unaffected by the belief that God himself died to save our souls. And so Jesus changes everything. Believing in Jesus changes everything in our lives. It changes what we think is, is, is good and, and bad. It changes the way we relate to one another. It changes the way we, we uh, approach God. It changes the way we think about the world. It changes absolutely everything. Because there is nothing, no belief, no faith that could be more pinnacle than faith in the son of God who died for our sins. And so Jesus calls us to follow him in faith, to do the works that he did, but we do not do them so that we will experience salvation, but because by faith we have already been made recipients of the salvation that Jesus gives by grace. And so in a moment, we're going to have an opportunity to, to, to respond to these things. The worship team is going to come up. I'm going to close us in prayer and, and we're, going to, we're going to worship. And, and there may be a variety of people in the room, some struggling to hold on to faith. Maybe you're here as a last ditch effort. Like, God, I don't, I can't, I don't know if I can hang on to you much longer. I feel faith slipping through my fingers. Maybe you're here and you're just beat up by the enemy because you're aware of disobedience in your life. You're aware of a lack of holiness in your life. And the enemy is coming in there and saying, you're not good enough. You're not obedient enough. God doesn't love you enough. You, you can't do this. Look, look at this disobedience in your life. Look at this sin in your life. You're going to say you have faith. Listen to the man up there. He said, faith and obedience is connected. You'd have disobedience. You must not have any faith. I hear the enemy too. I know what he says to me. I know, I know the way he works. So I know that there are people who he's just working on right now. Give up, give up, give up, give up. You don't even believe anyway. God will never accept you because of this thing in your life. And what we often think we have to do in that situation is like prove to the enemy that our obedience is good enough, that our faith is good enough, that our life is good enough. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to give up on that attempt. You don't need to convince the enemy. You don't need to convince yourself. You don't need to convince anyone that your works are good enough because that's not how you got here. One of the best things we can do when we're wrestling with the condemnation of the enemy. And he says, look at this thing that you did. Disobedient. Cursed is the one who can't abide. Is to say, yep. But Jesus saves. Jesus saves the disobedient. Jesus saves sinners. Jesus saves the broken. Not because of my faith or because of my obedience, but because of his. And my faith is in him that I will stand before God and God will look at me, open the book of my life, read every work, good and bad, I have ever performed 
close the book and say righteous because of the blood of Jesus. I heard John Piper say once that, that to be declared forgiven is one thing. We get forgiveness. He said, you did something wrong, but you're forgiven. God doesn't just declare us forgiven. He declares us righteous. Like everything you've ever done was in perfect relationship with God. And everything that you have done that is opposed to relationship with God, it's been covered. So he looks at you and he sees his son. Stop trying to go toe-to-toe with the enemy. And when we worship, I want you to use that as an opportunity to to, to stop, stop fighting with the devil and trust what God says about you. It's not by works, but by grace that you will stand before him. And if you are aware of sin in your life, then just repent. Just turn from it. The apostle Peter says, repent so that times of refreshing may come. Many people live like King David, who said that while he kept silent, his bones wasted away. When he kept silent about his sin, it just felt like anguish day in and day out, like he was dried up by the heat of summer. I know what that's like. Some of you know what that's like. The apostle Peter says, repent so that times of refreshing may come. Turn from your sin and turn toward the grace and forgiveness offered you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we just confess, Lord, that we are not, we are not obedient enough to earn our status with you. But we confess that there are things in our lives, uh, heart postures and little frustrations and whatever else it might be from, from things that we justify like little white lies to much larger things that we can't even forgive ourselves for. God, we know that we are guilty and we confess to you, God, that we're prone to wander. Like Paul, we're tempted to wrestle wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death. And Lord, I pray that you would fill us with the answer to his question. Thanks be to God, Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God, I pray that you would rebuke the enemy, that he would flee from us, that he wouldn't lead astray those who are desperately trying to cling to grace. God, I pray that you'd wash over us with the forgiveness of our sins, that we would experience, and as much as we're able to experience in this life, our Father in heaven, saying to us because of Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant saying to us because of Jesus, the words he spoke over Jesus at his baptism, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. 
God, I pray that you would lead us to do business with you in this place and to leave here knowing we've been justified by you, declared righteous by you because of grace. Lord, we love you and fill us with worship as we respond to how beautiful you are. In Jesus' name.